You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Before 9-11, there was 10-12. If we had responded to coal, would we have detected the 9-11 attacks that were coming? I will tell you this, doing nothing in response to that terrorist attack sealed this nation's fate. USS Coal Commander Kirk Lippold. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. didn't start with 9-11. Almost a year before terrorists flew planes into buildings, suicide bombers affiliated with al-Qaeda attacked the destroyer USS Cole as it was refueling in Yemen. Seventeen U.S. sailors were killed in that attack. The commanding officer of the Cole that day was 41-year-old Navy veteran Kirk Lippold. Now, even though subsequent investigations determined that There was nothing Lippold could have done to foresee or prevent the attack. He was denied promotions several times after that. In 2012, Lippold wrote a book about the attack. He called it Front Burner, and I had a chance to speak with him one day before the 12th anniversary of the attack. So here now from 2012, Kirk Lippold. The title Front Burner comes from the first voice report I made off the ship via cell phone one hour after USS Cole had been attacked. And that term stands for attack on U.S. forces. It's a standard term? It is a standard term that the Navy makes. I made what's called an OPREP 3 Pinnacle Front Burner Report. OPREP 3 is the operational report anytime you have a major incident aboard. Pinnacle means that it's going to generate national-level press interest, and front burner, of course, meaning attack on U.S. forces, which we had clearly been attacked by a terrorist boat Mm -hmm. at that point. And, of course, obviously, it also moved the whole attention to the front burner of what's going on with al-Qaeda, the danger to us around. Although it wasn't, I gather, apparent from day one who was responsible. within, Within a few days, believe it or not, the FBI and others in our government had very quickly determined that al-Qaeda was responsible for this attack. It had all the hallmarks. They were gathering the evidence that clearly indicated that they were finding the trails leading back to al-Qaeda elements, initially within Yemen, and then clearly expanding beyond that, going to Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. Had you received any indication before that day that there could be a threat? Uh, None. There was, when we pulled into, into the port that morning, the highest classification message I had aboard the ship related to terrorism was classified secret. It wasn't even top secret. And there was no specific or credible evidence or intelligence indicating that al-Qaeda had been in that port for over a year laying in wait. There was nothing to indicate that they had attempted an attack on another Navy destroyer nine months before USS Cole that the intelligence community had failed to detect. So when we pulled in that morning... Little did we know, the embassy in the capital of Sana'a had been closed because of terrorist threats. Yet we still pulled in, unaware that all this was going on. I had no evidence that I could use to tell my superiors in the chain of command, I don't think I should go in there because of the dangers. So we pulled in that morning as the 27th ship to go in. It was somewhat routine in the operations we were going to conduct. While there was elevated levels of security that we implemented, there were others that, based on the circumstances and physical surroundings, I chose not to do that morning. And ultimately, the investigation would say there was nothing that either I as commanding officer or my crew could have done that would have mitigated or prevented that attack. Now, did they? do we know, did they target the coal specifically, or was it just 
any opportunity, any any big vessel that they could get there, get close to and plant explosives on. It was very similar to 9-11. They didn't pick that day. They didn't pick USS Cole. They were ready. They picked up the phone. They essentially said, we've got all the pieces in place. We just happened to be the next ship that pulled in. And thankfully that morning, I was blessed with a truly, truly heroic crew that did a phenomenal job in saving that ship and their shipmates. Wow. Now, it's lunchtime, right? And and the sailors are getting ready. They're, they're in line for lunch? We were. We had started refueling and had been refueling for about 45 minutes. We had uh, found out that the refueling was going much quicker than we had expected. The rate was much faster coming on board. So we were trying to cycle everyone through the mess line, get the entire crew fed, so that when it came time to finish our refueling and get underway, we could do it that much quicker. So the crew had lined up, chicken fajitas that day. We were getting ready. It was a normal routine lunch when suddenly at 11.18 in the morning, there was a thunderous explosion. You could feel all 505 feet and 8,400 tons of guided missile destroyer go up into the right. Very quickly, we were plunged into darkness. I ascertained that we had been attacked. I went outside with a 9mm to defend my ship and my crew. We didn't know if we were going to be boarded. And as a testament to how well the crew did, despite the announcing system and the backup systems failing along with the alarms, no one could tell the crew what had happened, where to go, or what to do. Within a few hours, the ship was stable, and as far as the wounded go, that first day we would evacuate 33 wounded off the ship. We did it in 99 minutes, and of those 33, 32 had survived. Wow. Now, you initially, I gather, had no idea, was this a missile, was this a bomb, was this a, a torpedo? It could have been any of half a dozen different things, couldn't it? I, I, initially, I thought like everyone else, we'd suffered a fuel explosion. But because when I pulled the ship in and turned it around, I moored its starboard side or right side to a refueling pier in the middle of the harbor. When the explosion occurred, the ship was violently thrust up into the right. The only thing on my left side was open harbor water. If it had been a fuel explosion next to the pier, I should have been pushed left. Being thrust up into the right, I, I still don't know why, but instinctively I knew that something had come alongside and detonated. And sure enough, that would prove to be the case. Now, to all of us, Monday morning quarterback, non-military people, we say, didn't you guys see these idiots in a raft coming up to the ship? Couldn't you have done something? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's real easy for us to second-guess what you guys did. It's a great question. Captain, why did you allow that small boat to even come alongside your ship? And the bottom line is when we pulled in that morning to refuel, one of the other decisions we made, which is routine for import operations, is to have small boats come out to you that you have contracted with to remove trash and garbage, hazardous material. We contracted for three barges that morning. Two of them had come out, one to the middle of the ship, one to the back of the ship. They had left and were halfway across the harbor when a third boat came out. We anticipated that was going to be the third garbage barge. It slowed, came down the side of the ship. Security team members even saw it. They didn't think there was anything unusual about it other than it may have looked cleaner than the other boats. It came to the exact same spot where the other garbage barge had been in the middle of the ship and then detonated for the first time the Navy experiencing a waterborne IED. So they knew what they were doing. Absolutely they did. They took advantage in sitting there for over a year in that port. Al-Qaeda watched from a safe house. When Navy ships pulled in, what pier they moored to, what boats came out, what path they followed, where they came alongside, and where they stayed. After this short break, Kirk Lippold shows us the direct connection between the coal attack and 9-11. 
There are now two new ways to listen to Now I've Heard Everything. Full episodes are now on YouTube. Just search for Now I've Heard Everything. And if you're on TikTok, watch for the promos we post about new episodes. Tap the link at the bottom of the video to hear the full episode. Now back to my 2012 conversation with Kirk Lippold. You know, it reminds me, 10 years ago when we were going through the sniper shootings in the D.C. area, they told us, vary your routine. Don't do the same things every day in the same order and the same route. Absolutely. Does the military not have the same kind of protocol? Uh, absolutely. I mean, how many of us refueled our car on the other yeah. side just so we could block <laughs> ourselves from the roadside? Mm -hmm. I remember those days, and I reacted like everyone else mm -hmm. here in the area. The, the the military does vary their routine to a degree, but it was it was fairly straightforward. I mean, there's only I could either moor that ship port side two or starboard side two. I still had to take on fuel. We were below fifty percent that morning. We were going to be taking on over a quarter million of gallons. We we while in retrospect, people have looked back in the investigation and said, well, we could have slowed the ship. And taken more days to get it around to Bahrain, the headquarters for Fifth Fleet. And instead of getting there in four days, we get them there five or six. But the mindset was Navy ships never like to be below 70 or 80 percent because you want to maintain that flexibility. I mean, greatest example. When you're towing pirates behind you and you're trying to get them close enough for a shot, you don't just untie them and say, hey, we'll be back in six or eight hours because we're going to go over the hill and refuel. You want to make sure that you keep those fuel levels up so that if, if there is an incident at sea, you can respond to it. Coming back to, again, the, the, the why didn't you fire at this little boat that's coming out, correct me if I'm wrong, one of your crew members, and I can't remember who it was that had said later, we would have gotten in more trouble for shooting two foreigners then we got in trouble for losing 17 of our men. I think at the time that probably would have been true because when we pulled in that morning, there was, again, no intelligence that would indicate there was anything untoward. We didn't know that al-Qaeda had been in that port a year. There was no specific or credible intelligence. There was the general threat for the region from terrorists. Well, that had been so routine in the messages that it had literally been years. It was they had been using almost the same sentence. So as we pulled in that morning... The peacetime rules of engagement that were in place were the same ones we had been operating in. In what they call there's no supplementary measures, and there were no additional measures that we had been given flexibility on. So essentially, that boat had to exhibit either hostile intent, like aiming guns at us, or hostile act, like actually shooting at us, in order for us to take it under fire. It exhibited neither. We thought it was the third garbage barge. It came out, came alongside, and then detonated. Now, correct me, again, correct me if I'm wrong, all the reviews that happened after the fact in the months that followed essentially said you did everything right. You did everything, you personally did everything you were supposed to do. Is that more or less what they... It pretty much is. The investigating officer was somewhat limited when he did his investigation. He was told, you may only look at the actions of the commanding officer and crew on board the ship. He was not allowed to take it into the larger context of a terrorist act against a U.S. asset overseas. So looking purely at that, while the investigating officer said there were a number of of shortfalls that the captain and crew should have done or did not do that morning, as it went up the chain of command, the admirals and the political appointees within the Clinton administration were able to view it in that larger context. They understood that this was an attack that had far bigger ramifications, that in fact the entire chain of command bore responsibility for what happened. And that's why at the end of the day, 
No one was cited, court-martialed, or blamed for this attack. I will tell you right now, that morning, there was one accountable officer. That was me as the commanding officer, period. However, there's a fundamental difference between accountability and blame. If mm -hmm. you want blame, that squarely rests with Osama bin Laden, and he has been held to account by our nation. Now, I believe you said at the, at the outset of the book that, you, that the war on terrorism began with you guys. Before 9-11, there was 10-12. When you attack buildings or embassies, World Trade Center 1, Kobar Towers, the embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, Nairobi, Kenya, those are things that house and represent U.S. interests. When you attack a warship, that's something that specifically goes out and is there to defend U.S. citizens and our interests around the world. When you try to take away a nation's ability to protect itself, it's an act of war. And unfortunately, the Clinton administration, despite the fact that they said they were going to respond and hold people to accountable to justice, did not do so, didn't release the investigation till the night before George Bush took office. And unfortunately, when they took office, they took an attitude of, we're forward-looking, not backward-acting. They considered the information on coal to be, quote, stale, unquote. And so consequently, nothing was done. I'll tell you, Bill, we'll never be able to answer the question. If we had responded to coal, would we have detected the 9-11 tacks that were coming? But I will tell you this, doing nothing in response to that terrorist attack sealed this nation's fate. Again, I don't want to be the second-guessing civilian because I don't have access to anything that you guys, either in the military or in the highest levels of the White House, have. But it does seem to, in a way, make sense to not retaliate for each individual attack, but to gather your strength, gather your forces, your resolve, and do one massive, let's hunt them down and eradicate them once and for all kind of maneuver. You really can't do that, and I think we've learned that lesson. If you look back over time, the United States for years, whether it was back in the Carter administration, the Reagan administration, all the way to today, tolerating terrorist acts, whether it's against one citizen or thousands of our citizens, creates a mindset within the terrorists that we are weak, that we will not respond, that they will not be held accountable. And creating that attitude would ultimately lead to the devastating attacks on 9-11 that we suffered in New York, here in Washington, D.C., but also in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And I'm of the mindset, look, I don't care where you are in the world and whether it's one U.S. citizen or 10,000. You kill one, we will hunt you down, and we will hold you to account, and we must be relentless and ruthless in doing it. Kirk Lippold is 64 now. He works for a political marketing organization. And you can get your copy of Front Burner by Kirk Lippold by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. HeardEverything.com is where you'll also find my 1996 interview with General Colin Powell. The only thing I've ever wanted to do in, in my life was, uh, was to be a soldier. Nothing ever came along that really excited me or uh, pulled me away from my devotion to soldiering. In my 1992 conversation with the man who founded SEAL Team 6, Richard Marcinko. 30 years I defended the Constitution. And when it was my turn, I couldn't enjoy the Constitution because they invoked SEPA rulings on me and said things I could not say. So at my trials, I had no freedom of speech to express to a civilian jury the, you know, why I had to do things. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts, including YouTube. And thank you so much for listening. 
Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, she made an accusation against President Bill Clinton. She said he assaulted her in 1993 in the Oval Office. But many people didn't believe her. Next time, we'll revisit my 2007 interview with Kathleen Willey. This is a powerful story. It's about what happens to women like me. I've talked to many women who have suffered at Bill Clinton's hands and have suffered the same kind of intimidation and threat. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 